Back to throw Fitzpatrick. Throwing high into the air. Got it. Parker, touchdown. What a win for this Miami Dolphin team. Wow. What is up, Dolphins? And welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins official podcast network covering your Miami Dolphins each and every day. How is it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and I am here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football. And on today's show, with training camp just about three weeks away, we'll look ahead at some of the most intriguing camp battles to come. I try to understand a graph on force and acceleration. I'll tell you why camping is the worst. And we're talking all things fireworks, both on and off the football field. All of that and more on this Monday, July the 6th edition of the Drive Time Podcast. And training camp is merely three weeks away, give or take, depending on the report date of the particular team. We'll find out more about the Miami Dolphins here in the coming days and weeks on training camp. But every year we see the countdown to the regular season opener as kind of this grand number we're all looking forward to. But I always view the first day of camp as the start of the season, especially now in this role being on hand there in Davie. And after last year getting down to training camp on my own accord with the Locked On Podcast Network, that was to me like a kid in a candy store scenario. Everywhere you look, pretty much in your entire periphery with two football fields from goal line to goal line, you've got drills, position groups, coaches, star players out there. When you're a real fan of the game, I just don't think you can get any better than that. And you certainly can't replicate it. Of course, on Sundays, we all live for Sundays in the National Football League, but those training camp practices, man, they're a lot of fun to get out there and go see. So the best time of year for me is nearly upon us camp and we'll talk about my favorite camp battles that are set to take place on the battlefield out there in Davie but first let me just really walk back I guess this take that I put out there on Twitter and I think I sent it out on the 4th of July itself which is kind of sacrilege here I think especially in Washington State but I want to put context on it because I didn't actually go camping over the weekend I said that camping is objectively the worst and the word objectively is important there because I would argue that it's actually an inarguable fact. There were plenty of replies in there, some agreeing, some disagreeing. I saw a few mentions of glamping, which I had to look up what that is, but I agree with those folks because therein lies the exact reason why camping is, to me, well, the worst. Now, out here in the Pacific Northwest, you're really never more than 100 miles or so away from the mountains, so it gets cool outside fast. It was an hour drive for us to get from 85 degrees all the way up to 65 degrees up in the mountains, and you just can't beat that scenery. This is not a knock on nature. I happen to love nature, love getting out there and going for long walks or hikes, and that's why this trip actually was not bad at all. I really enjoyed myself out in the wild. My wife's family are the very outdoorsy types. They are to the T, people that want to get out there and go camping, and that's just not who I am. Different strokes for different folks. That's totally fine. And the beautiful part of having a child, as you moms and dads out there would know, is the built-in excuse to get out of literally anything you want. So my wife proposes the idea that we go out there and meet up with her family who are camped up in the mountains for the entire weekend and that we go for a few hours. And I figure, you know what? I don't want to go, obviously. It's not my favorite thing to do. But if she's willing to move across the country with me, the very least I can do is spend a few hours in the mountains 
And because she knows I loathe camping so much, I just made it a point to not complain about the whole thing at all. But this was entirely fine because I had a few beers, played some parlor games. Have you guys ever heard of the game called Can Jam? It's basically what amounts to a small, short garbage can with a frisbee, and you have two on two, and your teammate stands on the other side, and you throw a frisbee at him, and you try to hit this can, and he can like alley-oop it into the can, or if you make it in on your own, you get certain points assigned to you accordingly. So we drove up, had a nice podcast, had the little one was sleeping the entire way up there and the entire way back, got up there, played a couple of games, had a couple of drinks, then we got out of there. So a nice little reset, get away from the phones, and then boom, you get right back to your bed, your air conditioning, your internet, all the amenities that really, quite frankly, take over your life once you become inundated with them. So I can understand the need or the the desire for that reset. But that was about a three-hour deal up there actually camping, quote-unquote, not counting the drive. That's the maximum amount of time that I find it to be fun for me. And the comment that I saw that I thought was really dead on was, I don't work all week just to go strip away all the things I work for on the weekend. And that exactly right there is my point. Because you can't tell me that sitting around in a circle with nothing to look at other than each other, nowhere to go, not great food to eat, is better than having DoorDash and streaming services, air conditioning, a chase lounge with my cozy pillow and blanket. It's just, it's a no for me, man. Camping is a no for me. Now, Training camp, when it comes to football, that is for me. And this is something we haven't dove, dived, divin, dove into. I don't, it's, we haven't dived into training camp previews or camp battles since I took the reins on this podcast. Let's go ahead and talk about some training camp battles. We got to preface this with every single job is up for grabs. That's the basis of the program. You will compete and you will not have anything handed to you as a Miami Dolphin. That's most teams around the league, right? But it's especially true for Brian Flores and this Miami Dolphins team. And I think we learned that abundantly clear last season. Flores is first in Miami. And shoot, even being out there last year, there were a few surprises in the lineups through the course of the first couple of weeks of camp. Veterans that were considered maybe written in pen into the starting lineup by some of the fan base, and those guys are running with the twos. It's where I first reported that Nick Needham was getting some time with the ones before eventually starting that preseason opener, and of course that experience would serve him well as he would play a lot more later on in the season. And speaking of cornerbacks, and we're going to do a whole thing on defensive backs to close this podcast, but I know it was my first camp, but I would venture to guess that Xavier Howard last year was the best camp performer a lot of these longtime reporters in South Florida have seen on this team. He was so damn dominant. Stuff like that is what really makes camp fun to me, to see a guy grab a pick, then get a pass breakup, and then they gather up for 11 on 11, and he snatches another one. It was constant. It was fun to watch a star player perfect his craft in practice like X did last summer. So training camp is important for many reasons, but of course, sorting out these battles is one of the go-to things you look for at training camp. And let's go ahead and start here at the quarterback position. That's where you always start in this league, right? That's the obvious part. And I don't think it's hyperbole to say that this is the most talent the Dolphins have had in the quarterback room in quite some time from top to bottom. You've got a guy who's thrown for 33,000 yards and 210 touchdowns in his NFL career and whose best two years of his career came at age 36 and age 37 and for good measure, the third best year of his career for my money at age 33 back in 2015 with Fitzpatrick and the Jets. And you know what Fitz is going to look like in camp. He's going to be on time with the ball with his reads. He's usually going to be on target. He's going to have the offense operating in an efficient and correct manner, getting the plays 
called in and out of the huddle, getting guys to the right spot. You just don't really have to worry about Ryan Fitzpatrick. He has seen it all. You've also got a top 10 pick just two years ago in Josh Rosen, who made some big time splash throws down the field last year in camp, particularly going deep to Preston Williams. And I thought Josh's best moments in camp last year came during the live periods in the critical situations, the red zone, two minute drill, that sort of thing. I'm excited to watch him in year two in Miami and see the growth he's made that Florence referenced throughout the season last year, whether it was practice or on the game day field, whatever it was, Flores talked a lot about his growth, both mentally and physically. I'm excited to see that play out in training camp. And of course, the fifth overall pick in the draft in Tua Tungavailoa. You don't spend the fifth pick on a quarterback that is not supremely talented or a player at any position for that matter. The fifth best player in the draft figures to be pretty good, right? And that's who Tua is, the fifth pick in this year's draft. Highest passer efficiency in college football history for a career, the ball placement, the ability to get through his progressions quickly and replace blitzers with the football, pick up the coverage rotation, disguise or find the disguises in the coverage and go to the right spot with the ball. I can't wait to watch him sort through this offense in his rookie year and watch him take those steps we talked about with Rosen. Then you got Jake Rudock, who has done a really good job here in Miami of giving the third team a fair shake, a fair look from the coaching staff. And by that, I mean being efficient in his communication, not wasting reps because of knowledge gaps, getting the football out on time. We've all seen plenty of NFL preseason games that just aren't watchable late in the game. And that didn't happen here in Miami last year because Jake Rudock, he was quite the opposite, actually. Some really nice fourth quarter moments last August in those exhibition games. And that was true in camp too. And that's true because of Jake Rudock. I really like this quarterback room from one to four. I think they all give their teammates a chance to be better players out on the practice field. So it's Fitzpatrick's jobs to lose, his job to lose, but he's got to bring it every day because these young pups, they're going to push him. We go back into the backfield and take a look at the jobs up for grabs here in this backfield. Again, every position up for grabs, but I think the running back three position is the one that I'm most intrigued by in this group because I'm a big Miles Gaskin fan. Maybe it's the Pac-12 bias in me, but I also got Patrick Laird from Cal in that group as well. I thought Gaskin looked sharp last year when he got a little bit more chance to, to carry the football, to catch the football late. Of course, he suffers that injury in the Bengals game. That was a bummer because I thought he was really picking it up in that game. We talk about Patrick Laird. He shows you what he can do in the passing game, some of his skills there as a multifaceted back. Kalen Balaj coming back for his third season now, also a Pac-12 guy out of Arizona State. Chandler Cox, a fullback, but that's kind of an independent position as far as the third running back spot. Then you've got Malcolm Perry, who just adds a whole nother dynamic to your offense. So I'm really excited to see which of those guys can really push both Jordan Howard and Matt Breida and get onto the football field for some meaningful reps come the season. At the tight end position, the tight end two spot is what I'm looking at. We know what Mike Kosicki is, an ultimate seam buster, a big time receiving threat down the field. Durham Smythe, Michael Roberts, Chris Myrick, and Bryce Sterk, the undrafted free agent, going to flip over from the defensive side to play tight end. I was a big fan of Myrick last year in camp. Thought he earned that right to be on the practice squad because of some solid work he did both inside and down the field. And to round out the group, the UDFA Bryce Sterk and the signing back in February of Michael Roberts, formerly of the Detroit Lions. So in that group, a good mix of guys that can both be receivers down the football field or stay in line and block and help the running game that way. I want to see how that group battles and competes for playing time at tight end. 
then out wide at wide receiver, basically to see how the entire wide receiver core unfolds behind Devontae Parker. And for Devontae, obviously, putting together back-to-back good seasons, that's the challenge he faces. But I'm excited to see how Preston Williams looks coming back this year after a really strong first half of the season. Albert Wilson, kind of the converse of that, he finishes the season strong, got plenty of opportunities in that Bengals game, made some guys miss in the open field, caught some of those little short flat routes where it's basically putting him in a one-on-one position to make a move in the open field and he did well to pretty much leave some jock straps on the ground doing that. I want to see how he looks coming back in year two off the hip injury. Jakeem Grant had the off season, the videos, all the stuff he showed us, the quick sudden movement. We talked to him on the podcast last week about his game. I'm excited to see where he shows up this year. Isaiah Ford finished out the year very strong, earned some praise from the coaching staff for the ability to do that, but also helped some guys get lined up in the right spots in this Miami offense when maybe some guys were missing and they had to elevate some younger guys into the lineup. And then, of course, Alan Hearns gets the extension. You go back and watch some of the games last year, the broadcast crew from their production meetings and their meetings with Brian Flores and Ryan Fitzpatrick talks about how dependable and how solid Alan Hearns was. So from one to six there, in terms of those guys, you feel good. But I'm curious to see how that shakes out with the reps, the positions, where they all play. And of course, I cannot get enough of the one-on-one drills with receivers up against cornerbacks. This entire receiver group, I am so pumped to watch them practice and see what they look like. And again, where they all play, how many reps they get, that type of thing. You also got some guys that are trying to, you know, make a name for themselves in the league. Mac Hollins, he does some things on special teams, got some run with the Eagles and the Dolphins last year. Gary Jennings went down the first game he was in Miami, but he was a really good college player. Ricardo Lewis trying to get back from the injury last year. A couple of undrafted guys in Kirk Merritt and Matt Cole, fun receiver group here in Miami, but I'm just really curious to see how it shakes out behind Parker there at the top of the rotation. On the offensive line, I mean, pretty much every position out there up for grabs, right? We have a bunch of new starters and our new free agents and rookies coming here uh, to the offensive line. Want to see how Austin Jackson works right away at left tackle, see if he's up for the challenge of playing there. Eric Flowers, his transition to guard last year was a good one. Can't wait to see the physicality he brings there. At center, Ted Karras, the way he communicates is going to be so crucial. The right side of the offensive line, who gets the first crack at right guard, right tackle, those spots. I'll tell you this, Jesse Davis, if you're going to want Jesse Davis's job, you better take it from him because that guy's a veteran. He's been around the block. He's durable. He's dependable. And he does things the way this coaching staff wants him to. Earn that extension was a really valuable part of the locker room last year. And he finished out the season very strong at right tackle down the stretch when Miami's play kind of got better as a team. I'm just really curious to see where he shakes out at the end of this camp and where they want to get their best five on the field, where that best five means for Jesse Davis, because you got so much position flexibility with he, with Robert Hunt. We talked about Ted Karras and Eric Flowers playing all over the offensive line. I just want to see how they get the best five out there. Does it include Michael Dieter? Does it include Julian Davenport? Some of the guys they brought in last year, like an Adam Pankey, Danny Isadora, Keith Keaton Sutherland, Shaq Calhoun, all these guys played. You got three undrafted free agents. How does this line shake out? How many do they keep and who are the best five and how do they put them on the field from left tackle all the way to right tackle? Plenty of intrigue to watch there down by that TNT wall at training camp. On the defensive side, to me, things look a little bit more clear because of how fluid they are. And I know that kind of sounds like a 
like the ultimate contradiction, but if that makes kind of sense, on offense, you can have a receiver lineup at multiple positions, but in general, there's plenty of overlap there. A quarterback is always a quarterback. A left guard's always going to be a left guard. Those guys are playing one position. You got some flexibility at tight end and running back and receiver, of course, but not nearly as much as you get on the defensive side of the ball, especially in a scheme that is not dependent on any one core philosophy outside of just being fundamentally sound on the football field. I mean, we're talking about upwards of a hundred different jobs on the defense when you consider position, slant, leverage, where you might play, your role on that particular play. There are seemingly countless permutations, and that's why I think this is a little bit more fluid and less intriguing as far as who takes like a starting job because I think the term starter on defense in this defense is a very loose and probably even outdated term for the defense. So we know Christian Wilkins up front, he's going to play a lot. Brian Flores has talked about how big of a part of the future he is here in Miami. That is a given. Devon Godshaw is probably one of the most transparent players on the entire roster. You know what you get. Monster against the running game, strong, powerful, led the league last year in run stops via pro football focus. Shaq Lawson, Emmanuel Ogba, two free agent gets. They're going to play a lot, both tremendous scheme fits. But from there, that's when I get really intrigued as far as the rotation battle and how that shakes out. Who finds themselves in line for more work in which packages on the defensive line? I was super impressed with Zach Sealer late in the year last year. I think he can play in multiple spots up front. We know what Raekwon Davis is capable of. Greer and Flores traded up to go get Jason Strobridge. And then you got the couple of undrafted free agents with Lima and Jones. That's Ray Lima and Benito Jones. And you also got Durval Neto. So two good UDFAs. And then with Neto, a guy who is an absolute tank, just a monster of a human that has that jujitsu background. He had that year of seasoning coming over last year as the part of the International Pathway Program. Curious to see how he looks in year number two after a full year of seasoning on the practice squad. Off the edge, I mean, how many ways do you cut this thing here? Because we know Vince Beagle's got a nice arsenal of rush moves. We know Andrew Van Ginkle, a former Wisconsin Badger like Beagle himself, is well-versed as a blitzer and coverage guy off that edge. Kamu Gruje-Hill has tons of pop in all phases of the game. Raekwon McMillan played some sliding down last year off the edge in a quasi-Sam Backer role. He can do more of that than he did in years prior under previous coaching staffs. Jerome Baker can play out there. Kyle Van Noy, we know, can play anywhere on the defense in the front seven. Trent Harris and Avery Moss both played a lot last year. Curtis Weaver had the college sack production. Tyson Render, a nice UDF signing, UDFA signing. You've got a couple thousand snaps to really divvy up here at the linebacker and edge positions. I'm curious to see how that works out because with all the packages, all the fronts, all the different skill sets. It's really just basically Brian Flores and Josh Boyer, and those guys know what's going to happen. We don't. I'm excited to see what it looks like on the football field. In the secondary, the battle for the slot is one that I really want to watch as much as any on the defense. You've got X and Jones outside, Rowe and Bobby McCain at safety, And that's four guys that make up your core defensive backfield. But we know better than to just put four DBs on the field and call that a day because that's not football. In 2020, you need a nickel back a solid 75% of the time. You need a third safety at least half the time, give or take, and probably even more if you're playing that big nickel with two cornerbacks and three safeties on the field. Does Adrian Colbert continue his strong finish to the season? Where does rookie Brandon Jones figure in? In the slot position, Nick Needham, 
Noah Igbenogany, all the safeties in general that can come down and cover, and really among the incumbents, so many guys that had flashes last year at different times of the season. Ryan Lewis had some big plays. Tay Hayes finished out the year very strong. Jamal Perry, formerly Jamal Wiltz, I loved his tackling and aggressiveness in that slot position. Steven Parker had a big pick in the Indy game. Kayvon Frazier, Clayton Fedulum. So really the sub packages, that's where I'm curious to see how Flores and Boyer and Gerald Alexander want to roll out those sub packages in the defensive backfield. And let's go ahead and stick right there as we try to seamlessly transition into our next topic. I had a chance to watch a lot more football over the weekend as we tend to do during uh, COVID-19, just watching plenty of football. And in particular, I watched Texas and Auburn with two of our high draft picks in the defensive backfield and Noah Igbenogany and watched him up against Alabama and LSU again because I've seen these tapes a few times, but just watching the way he competes, we've heard the Auburn coaching staff talk about how competitive he is and the the mentality of competition that he brought to that roster and how they just couldn't rave enough about his ability to get guys up around him with that competitive spirit. You watch the way he challenged all those good receivers, whether it was Terrence Marshall, Jamar Chase, Justin Jefferson, Jalen Waddle, Devonta Smith, Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs. I mean, you're talking about multiple first round draft picks at worst all of them top first or second round draft picks and he competes up against all these guys and just brings that competitive spirit and you see the exact same thing there in Brandon Jones going up against LSU man there were some flashes as he is wont to do on the tape he always pops off but going up against just Justin Jefferson in that LSU game a first round draft pick there of the Minnesota Vikings. He competed and really hung well with number two. That was fun to watch. Also got a chance to watch some Byron Jones over the weekend because the Cowboys are almost always on the replay of NFL Network. The way he communicates and disrupts multiple passing lanes on any given play when he's in zone or, of course, when he's in man locking guys up. But I saw this clip, this video thread from John Ledyard on Twitter. I think he's at Ledyard NFL Draft talking about Levante David of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Of course, different position, but same idea. The way he passes off and communicates and gets into multiple different passing lanes. You see that so many times with Brandon Jones. So these three additions, I think, really give you depth and strength in the secondary for the Miami Dolphins. And it got me thinking about the matchups we're going to see on the schedule this year. A quick rundown of the receivers up against the Dolphins defensive backs or the pass catchers in general up against Miami's loaded defensive backfield. We start with the Patriots. And first, let's go ahead and talk about Cam Newton for a second and the kind of offense you might see there with him. That's a big addition to that offensive arsenal there for the Patriots going to Cam Newton at the quarterback position. They drafted two tight ends. They got Matt Lacoste, who's kind of a throwback tight end that can stay in line and block. And the real strength of that offense is the offensive line, really strong from left tackle all the way to right tackle, and probably the best interior offensive line in the league. They're also good and deep at tailback. And with Cam coming into the fold, you could have way more quarterback power, quarterback lead, some draws. It gives you an extra body in the running game. So you think maybe you build around the strengths that way, and you might see more guys like Raekwon McMillan and Landon Roberts in this game compared to the six or seven or eight defensive back packages you'll see normally from a Brian Flores defense, or it could be the opposite. You just do not know with the New England Patriots, but if it is, I love the way the Dolphins match up with Jones and X and Igbo and Needham and McCain and Rowe and Brandon Jones for that matter. The whole squad back there matches up with Edelman, who's an inside slot guy. You can probably cap him with a safety if you want to, and then let your true lockdown corners on the outside do their thing on Sanu, Nikhil Harry, Jacoby Myers, Marquise Lee. 
I like those matchups a lot. Now, Buffalo Week 2 presents some challenges. Not that I don't think the Finns wouldn't be up to it, but damn, this is strength on strength. The reason you go to the ballpark to watch these teams play. Stephon Diggs is the best route runner in football for my money. Cole Beasley is terrific at attacking leverage and showing his numbers to the quarterback in the soft spots of the zone. John Brown has that speed element to really help displace the defense and stretch guys out. Eric Rowe locked up Dawson Knox last year, so I like that matchup. But both those backs can be a problem in Singletary and Moss. I'm really excited to see how we go up against a Buffalo team that is just a bit further along in the timeline of their process under Sean McDermott. In week three, Jacksonville feels pretty similar here for me as week number one. I think they might want to go a little more smash mouth, but they do have DJ Shark, who is buttery smooth on the outside a smart route runner who can get in and out of his breaks and really go to work that way. But you can always double him and take your chances with the rest and Keelan Cole, Chris Conley, LaVisca Chenault, and the rest of those boys there. Week four, Seattle. I love, love, love those top two guys on the depth chart and Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf. But this is where Miami's depth really benefits the home team in this matchup in Seattle's receiving core uh, for numbers three through five. In San Francisco, Debo Samuel is an absolute beast, but we'll see if he's ready to go. Coming back from that broken foot he had over the summer, Marquise Goodwin, Emmanuel Sanders gone. Kendrick Bourne's a nice player. Trent Taylor, Dante Pettis. It'll be important for them to get Brandon Ayuk up to speed quickly, but it's George Kittle and the ground game there. That's where it starts. That's where you have to match up against the Niners. Denver, we talked about this on Friday. Jerry Judy, KJ Hamler, Cortland Sutton, Noah Fant, as talented as any, although largely unproven outside of Sutton, who had a breakout season last year. That'll be a fun one to watch. The Chargers are from LA, week number seven for that game. Keenan Allen is so awesome. I would say he's number two behind Stephon Diggs, if not number one as a route runner. I'd just double him and be done with that. Mike Williams, a big matchup there for the Dolphins. And you got Eric Rowe on Hunter Henry, another good premier matchup there in that game. Excuse me. For the Los Angeles Rams, the next week, this is another team like Buffalo and Denver that can really match up with Miami's depth. Cooper Cup is so tough. Robert Woods is crafty and explosive. I think Van Jefferson's going to be a really good one. They can go too tight with Gerald Everett and Tyler Higbee and get matchup problems on you that way. That's a tough challenge there as well for the Miami Dolphins secondary. And then I think the biggest challenge on the entire schedule is the Arizona Cardinals. Nuke Hopkins, probably the best receiver in all of football. It's either him, Michael Thomas, or Julio Jones for my money. Larry Legend will forever be a problem no matter where he is or how old he is. That guy just gets it done. Christian Kirk, Andy Isabella, even Hakeem Butler and Trent Sherfield on that roster. I am so, so, so very bullish on this Cardinals team. Probably the most options to attack you on the schedule so far. Maybe the entire schedule. The Jets love this matchup for Miami. Best receiver is an inside guy in Jamison Crowder. Denzel Mims, a good-looking rookie. They signed Brashad Perriman, and then they'll probably have to sort the rest out in camp there, but the Dolphins match up well. The Bengals, A.J. Green and Tyler Boyd is about as good as you can get for an inside-outside duo as there is in the NFL. they got to find the other spot, whether it's T. Higgins or John Ross, if he can stay healthy. A lot of these receiver cores we're running into might be more about future growth, and that bodes well for the Finns this year, as I think this defensive backfield is already pretty well established in 2020. The Chiefs, we all know about this group. Hill and Kelsey basically means you can't double those guys. If you play man against Mahomes, good luck. Demarcus Robinson could probably start for some teams, but he's fighting for balls as the fourth receiver and maybe fifth or sixth option behind Kelsey or a guy like Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. They got Miko Hardman, Sammy Watkins, Damian Williams at their disposal. Plenty of weapons for Patrick Mahomes. And then 
finally Las Vegas. They added some speed, man, and Henry Ruggs. Tyrell Williams was off to a great start last year. Hunter Renfro is just always open, really technical player that way. They add Nelson Aguilar with Darren Waller there as well as one of the better pass-catching tight ends. That could be a tough matchup as well. So all things told, let's see, we got Chiefs, Cardinals, Bills twice, possibly Denver, Las Vegas, and the Rams, some teams that can match up their depth with the receivers and tight ends up against Miami's defensive backs. But for the most part, I like a lot of these matchups for the Dolphins' defense in 2020. Okay, what else we got here? Some stuff to look at from Twitter over the weekend. A couple of threads I went ahead and shared or some posts that I talked about on Twitter over the weekend. You can follow me at Wingfield NFL for all my great Twitter takes. And there was a chart that someone posted up on Twitter. I'll get his handle here in just one second. The title of the chart was Force Versus Momentum for NFL Linebackers on Running Plays. And I love this analytical data. We've got Jerome Baker right here in the middle of the pack of this group. I'm not really sure how this works, how this is tracked. I have to imagine it's from the NFL Next Gen stats with all the great advancements we have with tracking this stuff. But there are two sides of this chart. One is the average momentum, which is mass times velocity, and then average force, which is mass times acceleration. Leighton Van Der Esch of the Cowboys is far and away off in the corner of his own category, but who's second there in the average momentum other than Dolphins linebacker Raekwon McMillan? We talk about his run fits, his ability to key and diagnose and quickly get his head in there and blow up fullbacks and pulling guards and even ball carriers when they're the first ones to meet him. This is a good example of how Raekwon's so physical and how he attacks and beats blocks and gets himself in there in the running game. A very valuable asset to your running game for your Miami Dolphins. 52, Raekwon McMillan was up around 340 in this stat. The average momentum, Leighton Van Der Esch was first at 342-ish or something, right above the 340 mark there on this chart. And as far as the average force, which is the mass times acceleration, he was behind Van Der Esch, Rashawn Evans, Dante Hightower, Hassan Reddick, and Jalen Smith. So he was six in that category. Again, one of the top run defending linebackers in all of football, and the physicality is on display with this exact thread. And to follow up on who created this uh, chart, this analytic study of force and acceleration of linebacker play against the run, his name is Pavel Veb. He's at Pavel underscore V-A-B on Twitter. You can give him a follow for some more analytics and inside charts like this. I love this stuff. It really helps kind of bring context to the football field. And speaking of context, boy, there was a tweet from CBS Sports, I believe it was, CBS Sports HQ, comparing the 1984 season of Dan Marino to the 2018 season of Patrick Mahomes. And while I am in the camp that Dan Marino was not just he couldn't be revolutionary because no one could keep up with who he was and how he played in that era. He just completely transformed the position, at least for himself, but nobody else really followed suit. And I think we've seen more of that as the years go by. I think Michael Vick was in that category. Lamar Jackson, really the only next guy to join that category as well. And Patrick Mahomes, to me, is in that same realm of this revolutionary, possibly transcendent player. Marino was transcendent because he was... The term transcendent just means that you are so far above and advanced of your peers, and that's who Marino was. Because you look at Mahomes, his stats in 2018, they were gaudy, eye-popping, 
but a lot of guys are throwing for 5,000 yards in today's NFL. There have been 12 5,000-yard seasons. That's not a lot by any stretch, but it's a lot more than it was in 1984. 11 of those 12 5,000-yard passing seasons have occurred from 2008 up until now. And Drew Brees has a handful of them, Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, the usual suspects. But Dan Marino is the one outlier. As I put in this thread, you look at the guys that have thrown for 5,000 yards, 2013, 2011, 2016, 2012, 2018, 2019, and then 1984 sticks out like a sore thumb. This guy was so far ahead of the game at that time. I, I, to me, I compare it to like Barry Bonds in his home run record-breaking season. You just don't see that kind of production, that type of an outlier where a guy for Barry Bonds was a three-outcome player, right? A walk, strikeout, home run type of guy. But man, he was impossible to get out that season. Dan Marino was the same in terms of comparison to the rest of his peers. You just... He just was different. He was transcendent that way. And I think that's important. Something that maybe gets lost among the younger fan base, how transcendent, how special Dan Marino truly was. You look at his record-breaking season, the 5,084 passing yards and 48 touchdowns. The next highest touchdown mark that year was 32. You look at the passer ratings that season. If you just take the median passer rating, it was right around 77.8. Marino's passer rating that year was 108.9. So he was 30 passer rating points better than the league median. I didn't have the average because that's a lot of math to do. But the median right there, the 14 and a half out of 28 quarterbacks that were charted on here, Marino was 30 passer rating points better than that. So just insane production from a quarterback who was way ahead of his time. So while we're on the subject of fireworks, I also think that real life fireworks, like I don't think camping is, they're just not fun anymore. I love them as a kid. Probably just a sign that I'm getting older. I suppose they're fun to watch for a few minutes. Like, But once you've seen one firework, you've kind of seen them all. And we live in a city that is literally the only spot in the valley where I live. It's the Yakima Valley where you've got a bunch of cities scattered throughout. That's the only city where they are legal. So they really start on the 3rd of July and probably even the 2nd, if we're being honest. And my cats, they are mortified. I have one cat that runs away for 48 hours at a time. He actually just showed back up. As I began to record this podcast, the baby kept waking up. So that's not very much fun. Just not a fan. Essentially, what I mean to say this entire podcast is to get off my lawn. But the fireworks I do like are the ones here staying with the same theme. that were the top 10 most explosive plays for your Miami Dolphins last season. And we're talking about explosive plays, whether it was a guy making a great play on the football, a big chunk gain down the field a play that maybe really swings the momentum of the game in the Dolphins' favor. Whatever the case may be, it was a play that was bringing ultimate fireworks from the fans, from the players, from the sideline. The top 10 most explosive plays for the 2019 Miami Dolphins. This pass is intercepted. Picked off by Bobby McCain. McCain still on his feet and now out of bounds. So that was a great look at Bobby McCain coming over from a single high position all the way across the field to the far hash mark to make a sliding interception on Brian Hoyer and the Indianapolis Colts. The Dolphins had a three-point lead with three and a half minutes to play in the first half, and he picks it off and takes it down into the red zone right after the Dolphins had turned the ball over themselves. A great break on the ball, a great rangy play from your free safety. Bobby McCain, number 10 with his pick in week number 10 at the Indianapolis Colts. Play number nine for your most explosive plays in 2019 goes to Preston Williams. It's Patrick going to throw, taking a deep shot down the field, and it is caught. That is Preston Williams on the outside. 
Well, Fitzpatrick said, I love the 50-50 balls, and he's going to throw them today, a gain of 34. And he goes right after Levi Wallace for a gain of 34 that of Preston Williams, a perfectly placed ball to the Dolphins' rookie receiver for a big gainer to set up a first touchdown drive there for the Dolphins to grab the lead in that game. Speaking of Ryan Fitzpatrick, how about him checking in for a rushing touchdown here at play number eight? One-yard scramble touchdown in Foxborough Week 17 gave the Dolphins a seven-point lead midway through the third quarter. He juked a couple of guys out en route to the end zone. Another big rushing performance there for Ryan Fitzpatrick, a big-time play, and you get a wry smile on the sideline from Coach Flores, a very fun moment. As pressure arrived, he steps up and around it, makes a move on number 51 there, Jawan Bentley, and dives into the end zone as he gets hit by a big defensive lineman there. Ryan Fitzpatrick checking in with play number eight. And for play number seven, we'll go back one week as Ryan Fitzpatrick again part of this combination as he finds tight end Mike Kosicki for a big touchdown. Fitzpatrick taking a shot. Kosicki wide open. Touchdown! Third touchdown of the season for Mike Kosicki. He was all alone. And for Ryan Fitzpatrick, that's his third touchdown of the half. And we're going to hear from that combination here again in just one second. But for now, play number six in the Dolphins' top 10 explosive plays in 2019. Let's go ahead and get to number six here with a player who's going to check in a lot on this list the rest of the way. Third down. Here is Rosen. Going to go deep. Looking for Parker. One-handed catch and a flag. Devontae Parker with one hand deep down the field. And the penalty flag to boot, and it looks like it's on Dallas, so this will count, as you were saying, Charles Davis. So it's a big shot down the field for 40 yards. It was a third down and four to get the Dolphins going early in that game, the first drive of the game. As I said, we're going to hear plenty more from Devontae Parker as we go back to Parker and back to Week 16 against the Bengals here for another big pass from Ryan Fitzpatrick to Dolphins' 1,200-yard receiver, Devontae Parker. Here's Laird. It's a flea flicker. Fitzpatrick takes a shot. Airs it out for Parker. Parker, he's got it! Inside the 10! And on that catch, he goes over 1,000 yards for the season. A 51-yard gain. This is when the Dolphins' offense was really coming onto the scene late in the year as Parker and Fitzpatrick really found that connection in December and just kept going after it over and over again. You hear them say he goes over 1,000 yards on that play. Well, they wound up with 1,200 yards, so another bunch of yards in that game, another bunch of yards in the Week 17 game, which, of course, we'll hear from again on this list. As for play number four, we go back to the tight end, Mike Gasicki, and we go back to New England in Week 17. You hear them mention the quiet stadium. I love when the play-by-play announcer lets the crowd do the announcing for him to let the moment really marinate as he did right there. 24 seconds on the clock. The Dolphins strike for a touchdown to take a 26-24 lead. They would tack on the PAT and close that game out with a victory in Week 17. A big-time touchdown pass from Ryan Fitzpatrick to Mike Gesicki. And we go back to Devontae Parker for the third play on our top 10 explosive plays from the 2019 Miami Dolphins season with number three here, another connection from Fitzpatrick to Parker when the Dolphins had to have it on fourth down. Fourth down and four. 
Bruce get to the Eagles 39-yard line. Laird in the backfield. Fitzpatrick, fourth down. And this pass is caught. Parker. Rolled a touchdown. Did not step out of bounds. One official check with the other. He stayed in bounds. And he did stay in bounds as he went over the top to bring that ball in. A 50-50 ball in Parker. We know better than that by now. Those balls are 70-30 at worst. Probably closer to 90-10 when Uncle gets up in the air and plucks those things off of Ronald Darby's head in this instance for a long touchdown here against the Philadelphia Eagles. 43 yards to pay dirt. Ryan Fitzpatrick to Devontae Parker. And speaking of long touchdowns, we'll go for the longest play of the season for the Dolphins here with play number two. Jakeem Grant. Jakeem Grant's going to play it here with a bump 20 to play in the half. Grant is a firecracker. Still going. Grant. And Grant, it's a foot race, and he will score. No, he did. Oh, my goodness. I promise I did not know that he said firecracker in that call, so it works even better. Maybe even should have been play number one there as Jakeem Grant goes 102 yards back to the house on a kick return against the Buffalo Bills. But play number one, you can't dispute this one. Another touchdown, this one coming on the defensive side of the ball. We go back to week 17. Picked off! Going to the end zone is Eric Rowe for the touchdown! And I'm not even sure who that football was for. It was, it was in between. It was in between Julian Edelman and Sony Michelle. And next thing you know, Eric Rowe is celebrating with his Dolphins teammates down in the end zone, the place where he used to play his professional ball in New England. A great pick six there off the Patriots quarterback. Eric Rowe, your number one most explosive play in 2019. Hit me up on Twitter. Tell me which plays I forgot, which plays I omitted, which plays belong in this list, which plays were too high, which plays were too low. I want to hear from you. Hit me up at Wingfield NFL on Twitter. And with that, That is going to be my time today. You all, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, tuned in, wherever you get your podcast from. Go ahead and leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Helps the podcast out. Give me a follow on Twitter. Again, at Wingfield NFL. Follow the Dolphins at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Audible podcast with Kim and John. And of course, the Fish Tank podcast with Seth and Juice. They have Ray Lucas up on Tuesday and MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up.